said, we're looking at John 15, and we're going to go through verses 1 through to 16, and we're looking at Jesus' I am statement, which says, I am the true vine. Uh, so I'm just going to read our passage for us this morning. Uh, if you want to open with your Bibles, or it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Uh, so God's word says, I am, uh, this is Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As my Father has loved me, I also love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I know I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to remain, uh, to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Uh, just before we start, I'd like to take some time just to pray about the passage and that God would reveal what he has for us this morning. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this passage. Uh, thank you for these words of Jesus. Uh, thank you for the great encouragement that they are to us as Christians. Thank you for these foundational truths that we can learn as a result of this. Uh, Lord, help them uh, to direct our relationship towards you. Help them to be um, increasingly more dependent on you uh, as a result of what Jesus has to, to say here. Uh, Lord, through your spirit, um, uh, convict our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so just before we begin, I want to give you a short summary statement of our passage this morning, uh, which I feel is a reasonable summary of the main point of our passage, and it should be on the screens behind you. Uh, the summary statement is, Jesus is the source of life, and life is right relationship with God, and this has a distinct appearance. Uh, so this is just something for us to hang our hats on, uh, and if you remember one thing about the sermon from this morning, uh, remember this. Uh, so to orientate us at this point in John's Gospel, uh, we join Jesus and his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. Uh, so this is the evening Jesus will be betrayed, and he's in the middle of an extended section of teaching, and it goes all the way from chapters 13 through to chapter 17. And within this section... Uh, Jesus is describing what the relationship within the Godhead looks like, so between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he's describing how we relate to God in light of that. And it's at this point that Jesus makes this I am statement, I am the true vine, which is significant because found within this metaphor, 
is the foundation to continued and right orientated relationship with God. Uh, so Mark last week helpfully laid out some background to these I am statements. Uh, he was looking at Jesus' statement before Abraham was I am. And he linked this to Exodus 3 and verses 14 and 15, the story of the burning bush. And again, it should be on the screen behind us. And it's where uh, Moses is revealing his name. Uh, sorry, God is revealing his name to Moses. Uh, and he says, I am who I am. Uh, and when you think about it, uh, this name is quite vague. It doesn't provide us much of a character description. But in fact, quite the opposite. Uh, it conveys that God is indescribable. He's incompatible. It highlights the transcendence or otherness of God. So there's no category to define him by. Uh, and so he has to define himself. And that's why he says, I am who I am. Um, and we're told at the beginning of John's gospel, all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 18. We'll read uh, verses 16 through to 18 again on the screen behind us. Uh, John writes at the start, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God, is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Uh, so we're told from these verses that Jesus is God and that he's come to reveal his character to the world. Uh, we read in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 that we're blessed because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So although Israel caught a glimpse of what this indescribable God was like through the law, we now have truth because we've seen what God is like through Jesus. And this is what Jesus is doing in his I am statements. He's using evocative Old Testament language to highlight to his listeners that he is God. And he's signifying that what he's about to say is an explanation of his character. So just like God did for Moses in the bush, it's no different with Jesus when he gives these I am statements. Uh, obviously, a significant portion of biblical history has taken place between Exodus 3 and John 15, our passage. Uh, Israel and his offspring were chosen as God's people and God would reveal his character to them. Moses has led them out of Egypt and given them the law in the wilderness. Uh, and this was to help them to relate or to coexist with God in light of his character. Uh, as they learned what God approved of and disapproved of, they would slowly learn God's character. Uh, they then settled in the promised land and blessing and curse was laid before them as their two options. Uh, blessing for obedience to God's law and curse for disobedience. Yet we read of their disobedience and the steady decline of the nation until they're exiled. Uh, the people are eventually brought back into the land, but the cycle just repeats itself until we have the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And the problem is, they still haven't learned God's character. They don't care about him. They just want the blessing that comes from rule following, which we can all attest to is unattainable because we all slip up. So obedience, which results in blessing, has always been about relationship with God. And Jesus, as he makes these I am statements, reminds us of this and welcomes us into that relationship as he reveals what he's like. Uh, if we know what someone's like, we can start to build relationship with them. So with all that in mind, let's look in more detail at our passage from this morning, chapter 15, 1 through 16. 
Uh, verses 1 to 8 is a metaphor that Jesus gives. And then verses 9 through to 16 are Jesus' direct application of that metaphor to his disciples or the reason that he gives the metaphor in the first place. Um, and if you look at verses 1 to 8 and verses 9 to 16, I think it's quite clear that these are linked. If you, could, if you note in your own time, just all the similar language and themes that cross over between the two. Uh, so I'm going to walk through a passage under these two headings. Uh, the first heading is the metaphor, verses 1 to 8. And the second is the application in verses 9 through 16. Uh, and as we make our way through these, I hope you'll uh, see the summary statement start to make more sense. So, the metaphor, verses 1 to 8. Uh, use your imaginations with me and picture the analogy Jesus is building here. So, I know it's not very common for us to see grapes growing, but I think we can all picture what Jesus is speaking about. It at least gives us the opportunity to picture somewhere warm. Uh, we're sat on a balcony in the south of France and we're looking over at a vineyard and you can see a large vine weaving along a mesh support and from this vine come branches all along its length with large clusters of grapes, some full and some just starting to grow. Along the ground you see broken branches which have turned to twigs and will soon get swept up by the gardener. So Jesus is using this image to describe four different characters. Uh, let's read verses 1 to 2. So they say, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that it will produce more fruit. So in verse 1, Jesus is likening himself to the vine. Uh, again in verse 1, God the Father is likened to the gardener. In verse 2, the branches that do not produce fruit convey people not in relationship with God. And in verse 2 again, branches that are pruned but produce fruit convey people who are in relationship with God. Uh, so firstly, the father is the gardener. He's portrayed as an overseer, the one tasked with the decision-making. Uh, but we're not going to spend any more time uh, considering his role directly, although for completeness I mention it because he's mentioned in the analogy. Uh, instead, we're going to focus on the vine the branches that don't produce fruit and the branches that produce fruit. Um, so the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Notice in verse 1 that Jesus says, I am the true vine. He doesn't just say, I am the vine, but he uses this adjective true to describe this vine. Um, and this should be of interest to us when we read this, because doesn't it imply that there's more than one vine? Um, I think that it does. And so when doing a little investigating, we find that there are other vines described in the Bible. This vine metaphor is used in several other areas of Old Testament scripture. Uh, two of the most notable are Psalm 80, verses 7 through 17, and Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Uh, I'm going to read Psalm 80, uh, verses 7 through 17 just now. It should be on the screen behind us. It says, Restore us, God of armies. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. You dug up a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. It took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its, shades, uh, by its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out sprouts towards the sea and shoots towards the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its fruit? Boars of the forest tear at it and creatures of the field feed on it. Return, God of armies, look down from heaven and see. Take care of this vine, 
the root of your, your right hand planted, the sun that you made strong for yourself. It was cut down and burned. They perished at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be with the man at your right hand, with the son of man you have made strong for yourself. Uh, so in this psalm, the writer is clearly speaking of Israel. Uh, we read phrases like the vine dug up from Egypt and the nations were driven out to plant it. And again, when we come to Isaiah and uh, chapter 5, we're going to see again, I'll just read verse 7. Um, Isaiah writes, For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. So again, this is clearly speaking of Israel. The verse explicitly states that the vine is the house of Judah, uh, and that they had not followed God's commands, and as a result, God would destroy his vineyard and so reject them. But then when we come back to our passage, and when Jesus, using this fine imagery in verse 1, says, I am the true vine, his Jewish disciples would have understood exactly what he meant. Jesus is saying that he is the better Israel. In fact, the true Israel. The realization of what God had intended Israel to be, but because of our sinful nature, could not. Um, in Deuteronomy... Life is promised to Israel as they love God and obey his commands. Again, it will be on the screen. Uh, he says, uh, this is again Moses speaking, I am commanding you today to love your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands. And then on the next slide, it says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Love the Lord your God, obey him and remain faithful to him for he is your life. But Israel did not love God and so didn't keep his commands. So rather than life and blessing, they found curse and death. And this is why it's great news when Jesus says, I am the true vine, and why it's great news that we can be attached to him as branches. Because without Jesus, because of our sinful nature, we can't love God or obey his commands. And so the cycle was just destined to repeat itself. We'd be rejected by God. As the true vine, Jesus obeyed all of God's commands he did this all the way to the cross. And more than just security and blessing on earth as was promised to the nation of Israel, through Jesus we are promised eternal life and life with direct access to God and personal relationship with him, just as Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. So Jesus is a better vine. Uh, there will, however, be those who choose to reject Jesus, and this is evidenced by their lack of fruit, as described by Jesus' words in verse 2. Uh, they say, every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And we see further detail of the fruitless branch in verse 6. If you want to look down with me at verse 6. It says, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Apart from Jesus, our destiny is death and destruction. Separation from Jesus is separation from the life that he offers. Uh, for those of you that don't know, me and Claire are currently living with my parents on the south side uh, and at their house mum and dad have a garden out the back which dad likes to tend to. Uh, and in the garden next to the garage there's a little shoot of green ivy which has made its way up through the paving slabs and dad had this grand vision of the ivy growing up the garage wall and around one of the garages, uh, around one of the windows. Sorry. However, if you were to see it now, you'd see that little shoot of green ivy and then you'd see a gap and then you would see um, the rest of the ivy adhered to the wall, but brown and withered with no leaves on it. 
And the problem had been that this branch had detached itself from the ivy shoot, which was connected to the ground. And so the branch making its way up the wall had died off because apart from the wee shoot of ivy in the ground, it had no life supplying itself. Uh, so it died and made no progress. And this is the same analogy Jesus is painting with the grapevine. Just as a branch removed from a plant is going to die and dry up, so too are those detached from Jesus dead spiritually. If we're dead, we aren't going to produce fruit. We aren't going to produce what we were designed to do. And if, Jesus, if uh, TJ noted a couple of weeks ago, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, then apart from reliance on Jesus, we are incapable of glorifying God. So no amount of discipline, no amount of Bible reading plans, no amount of godly discipleship with God's people will ever bring glory to God if it's not rightly submitted to Christ. So unless we come humbly to the vine, admitting that we can do nothing on our own strength, asking and trusting that he is able, as this metaphor shows, to give us what is necessary to please God, then apart from Jesus, we will be unable to. We will be cut off from the life that Jesus offers. And this is the starting point for any Christian. Through Jesus, we have forgiveness and access to the Father, and he changes our desires so that we can opt to choose to do good and bring glory to God. This is the life that he offers. And the purpose of this is to bring glory to God. Read with me verse 8. It says, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be his disciples. So if we're not bringing glory to God, then like a dead branch in the vineyard, what is our purpose? The withered branches have no purpose, and so the gardener gathers them up and burns them. Separation from Jesus ultimately ends in judgment. And this isn't a teaching to be shunned, other than reminding us to rightly revere a holy and just God. It also reminds us that there are those around us who are separated from God and that they're going to be withering and eventually they will be burned. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the idea as well of the branches broken off of the vine uh, because I'm aware some people might have questions uh, and the question might be, is this people losing their salvation? Well, simply, no. Uh, the quickest way to dispel this is read verse 16 with me. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. So we don't choose God. We don't choose to abide in Jesus as branches abide in a vine. He chooses us. Uh, we have to remember that this is a metaphor. Uh, this is a word picture, a teaching aid, and it's designed so Jesus' listeners better understand his main point, which is that life is found in him. Uh, we don't have to press every facet of the metaphor to cor correlate to a spiritual reality. However, as we discussed earlier, if we understand Jesus to be saying that he is the true Israel and he is speaking to Jewish people, then it makes perfect sense to say that some would be broken off because not all Israel that make up the vine would be saved. Some would be broken off and others grafted in. So if you wanted to explore the possibility of this correlating to a spiritual reality, then I have no issue with this explanation. Uh, let's move on to the branches that produce fruit in verses 4 and 5. Uh, verses 4 and 5 read, Remain in me, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him 
produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Uh, so if death is found detached from Jesus, then it would be reasonable to assume that the opposite is true attached to Jesus. And I think the metaphor is quite clear in supporting that. Uh, so just as a branch attached to the vine is full of life and so produces fruit, so too are those attached to Jesus. Uh, but what do I mean when I say we can be full of life and produce fruit? We understand how this applies to a plant or a fruit tree, but how does this apply to us as people? Uh, well, it requires to us to understand what life the vine Jesus has to offer. Um, it's not just physical life, like the physical sustenance a vine provides, uh, but rather spiritual life. So Jesus died on a cross to make us right with God. He paid the wages of our sin. The full wrath of God was poured out, extinguished. And so God's justice has been satisfied in Jesus. God, the one offended, bore the burden of our sin. Uh, Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to minister to us. Jesus is standing as our advocate before the Father for all time. And Jesus is doing many other things that we won't fully understand until God teaches us these things in eternity. Uh, and this is why we can say through Jesus we have life. We can enter into relationship with God on Jesus' standing and we can choose to do good, to produce fruit because of what Jesus has done and continues to do for us. So unlike Israel, who tried to earn blessing through obedience in their own strength, we're not destined to the curse because we're able to choose obedience through Jesus who strengthens us. And these acts of obedience are the fruit that the metaphor speaks of. It's conveyed this way because it's a visible indication of life that Jesus has given to us. Uh, so just as grapes are a visible indication that the branch is alive, so too are good works a visible sign of spiritual life in us. So don't listen to this and conclude that our focus should be on the good works. I'll try harder here, I'll dedicate over there. Like we said earlier, that's the dead branch talking. Our focus is on Jesus and building relationship with him and the good works by nature will follow because of the life that that relationship with Jesus brings. So I don't know how many people have seen the movie Field of Dreams. And if you're over the age of 40, you might stand a chance of knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, but here we go. <laughs> uh, it's a movie about a guy who, passes, uh, who sees past all-star baseball players come back as ghosts to play baseball on his farm. And a caveat, this is not theologically accurate. Uh, during the movie, Kevin Costner's character is at a crossroads. He's unsure whether to spend time and money building a stadium for a bunch of ghosts who may not show up. Uh, the advice given to him is, build it and they will come. Well, similarly, build relationship with Jesus and good works that please God will come. Our focus is not on the works. And these good works will not just come in small measure. Read verse 5. It states, they will come in abundance. And it will be displayed on the screen behind you. It says, you will produce much fruit. Uh, let us end by briefly considering our last heading, uh, application of the metaphor. Uh, and this is as Jesus commands his disciples in verses 9 to 16. I'm just going to read um, verse 12 for us. It says, this is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. So the fruit Jesus chooses to highlight is love. Uh, and I think the nature of the command is one of the reasons that Jesus feels it necessary to give us a metaphor or a preamble with a teaching aid. Isn't it an odd command to give love one another? 
How can Jesus or anyone for that matter command us to love? As we've already said, it has unattainable properties. Well, we can put that into practice from what we've just read in verses 1 to 8. As we love Jesus and stay close to him, his life, which is right standing with the Father, effective prayer, which we didn't speak about, but it's found in verses 7 and 16 of our passage this morning, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, and much more, his life available to us as the, branch of his, as the branches of his vine. And so when we approach a command like this, we can be confident that through relationship with Jesus, that we'll be able to obey. Fruit is a guaranteed byproduct of our attachment to the vine. It's like verse 10 says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Obedience is the mark of relationship. Uh, and this thought process can be applied to any fruit, anything that God considers good and brings glory to him. Whatever we're struggling to overcome, whatever disobedience that clings, know that it's not overcome with perseverance or cleverly devised action plans. Uh, and I know it can be so tempting to go to sources other than Jesus because it gives us that sense of self-control. Uh, it makes us feel like we're building our own self-worth. And these things may work for a while, uh, even the good things like disciplined Bible reading plans. Um, they may make us feel like we're making progress in our Christian walk. But if it transpires, we're really focusing on obedience through our own self-reliance, then than on Jesus, then these good works, this fruit, it's not going to last. And we may even wake up one day and realize that actually we were a dead branch all along. The key to constant fruit-filled lives that correctly honor God is found in us being supplied by the life Jesus gives through dependent relationship on him. Disobedience is overcome by running to Jesus and focusing on him, and the byproduct will be fruit. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Uh, I also wanted to say as well that this aspect of us drawing close to God or to Jesus is relational and so it's a matter of the heart um, and this is where logic leaves us. This explains why it's a work of God. We cannot think our way into a relationship with God by knowing facts about him just as it is with any other relationship. So I do not love my wife because I know facts about her. Love has unexplainable qualities uh, and so at this point we can only leave it to God. So I want to close uh, with Jesus' words in verse 11. And it says, um, sorry. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So if we needed any more incentive to run to Jesus, as we practice these things more and more, we will experience joy. Uh, so I'm going to leave it there. And I'm just going to pray for us before we come to the table. Uh, dear Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for the words that you've given us. Uh, thank you for this picture that Jesus paints. Uh, thank you that Jesus is the vine, the one with the source of life, and that we can be attached to him as his branches. Uh, thank you that we get to benefit from everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus has done, and that we can enjoy life and blessing as a result of what Jesus gives us. Thank you, Lord, that as we do this, that by nature, the byproduct will be fruit. The byproduct will be good works that correctly honour and please you and that we can bring glory to you as we seek to um, build relationship with Jesus. 
Lord, thank you for the time that we've had this morning to look at these things, and I pray it will impact our hearts uh, and it will encourage us as we go forward in our weeks. Uh, Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.